I'd ask that you take God's Word in your hands and turn to the Gospel of Mark, and as you are uh, turning in your Bibles, make sure you grab your friendship registry. It's the black binder at the end of each of the rows, and uh, if you would, at the end of the row, just go ahead and pick that up, and uh, whether you're a first-time guest or a long-time member, we want you to uh, take that opportunity just to uh, look at the different things that you can be a part of. It's an opportunity for you to communicate with the church leaders and also sign up for a lot of the events that you see in your bulletin. And as the kids head off to uh, children worship. Uh, uh, We find ourselves once again in our study of Mark. Uh, We've been in this study now uh, for 18 weeks, and uh, we're about halfway through uh, the study. We'll be finishing up this study in the first week of June, God um, willing, that uh, we would fulfill our commitment to this study. And uh, we have found ourselves in a week that uh, uh, addresses an issue that uh, is quite explosive, It's explosive because it addresses an issue that plagues us as a society. And even more depressing is that it plagues us as a church. The issue is that of divorce and broken marriages. Now before I get into our study today, before I read the text, I need for the way of introduction to share some of the hesitancies that I have when we come to a subject matter like this and and trying to preach it. Now, we've been in this study, and we haven't chosen this topic just to lay it on thick uh, with regards to people that have found themselves in uh, some pretty tough circumstances, but this is one of the things that when you preach a book of the Bible, you will inevitably come to topics. Uh, There are a lot of topics that I love to preach out of the Gospel of Mark, and quite frankly, there are topics that I wish we could move on from, but we teach and preach all of God's Word even the difficult ones, and I want to share just for a moment some hesitancies on dealing with the issue of divorce and remarriage and broken marriages. And the first one is that it is nearly impossible for me to deal with this subject matter in one message. As great of a single message could be, there are numerous questions that will come up with regards to the question of divorce and remarriage. And I'm not going to be able to answer all of them. I'll be giving us a general guideline and understanding of what Scripture says and the occurrences where uh, the subject of divorce and remarriage comes up, but there's no way I'll be able to address each of these firsthand. The second thing that I'm hesitant about is that I need to understand, and I need you to also understand, that there's great disagreement within historic evangelicalism surrounding this issue. And there are many viewpoints that uh, not only myself, but the elders of this church respect. There are other ones, quite frankly, we don't, because we think that it, it goes away from the standard that God's Word says. But we as an elder team and as uh, pastors of this church have come to a consolidated and united viewpoint on this subject matter, even though admits that under that heading there are differences amongst the elder team, even with regard to some of the nuances of the position that we hold as a church. The third thing I want us to remember is that in preaching a message like this, there must be found a delicate balance It is very important that we preach and teach the Word of God and that we preach it without compromise and without any question or any kind of wavering in our hearts. But as Jesus makes abundantly clear to us is that we as his people must be like Jesus who was filled with grace and truth. And we can think that truth is important, and it is, But if truth is not showered with the grace of Almighty God, then it becomes a list of do's and don'ts, and it becomes a 
drudgery and a duty instead of the delight of serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The final thing that I want to bring to our attention as a hesitancy of preaching this message is that I recognize that for some in this place, the issue of divorce and that of remarriage involves deep pain for some in this place. And I want to make this abundantly clear. I do not want in my preaching of this message to diminish or dismiss any of the pain that some of you have experienced due to troubled marriages and maybe even a divorce. And so in light of these four truths, I want you to know the following. Number one, I strive not to preach that which will make people feel good, but to teach and to preach the word of God as it is written, even to the cost of popular and public opinion. But in saying that, I want to personally reaffirm my love to every one of you. You are my friends. You are the deepest and greatest relationships that I have in this world, and I'm thankful for it. And I, as your preacher, fully recognize that I myself am a sinful man in need of grace from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so with that, I humbly present to you Mark chapter 10 and the Word of God. So let's get into this this morning. I'm uh, limited on, on the time that I have because of the subject matter, and so let's get right into it. I'd ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word as we look at this text. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through uh, 12, and I'll be reading from the New International Version this morning. It says the following, Jesus then left the place and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus replied, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. When they were in a house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. And he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Let's stop there and pray. Father God, we come to you, and we come to you as men and women in need of your grace, men and women in need of your mercy. And today, Lord, we deal with a very specific subject matter. But Lord, let us not think that there is not something for each of us to glean from your word this morning. Father, that we would recognize that there is no hope for our lives, there's no hope for our homes, there is no hope for society if you don't show up into our lives, if you don't change who we are. And so, Lord, as the perfect surgeon that you are, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. Lord, do a work in my heart so that I might be different, that I might turn from my sin and follow you with a whole heart. Now, Lord, be with us in our time. We pray that these words will bless and magnify your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
There's a battle that is raging in our world today, and it involves the family, especially with regards to the issue of marriage. Now, while this battle may seem new to the last couple of years of our existence, marriage has been under, the ta- under attack since the days of the Garden of Eden when Satan tried to split that first family, and in properly doing so, he was able to bring forth the demise of the human race. We see that marriage was under attack even in the days of Jesus. During the times of our study in the Gospel of Mark, we see that broken marriages was a common place, it was commonplace and was a common occurrence in the land of Palestine. Jesus had seen the pain, he had seen the trouble firsthand that had come to people who had been a part of broken marriages and the sadness that would come. Sadly, in our world today, few of us are immune or even exempt from the troubles that this sin brings to a family, to a uh, society as well. Now, in the present times, we see this battle being fought in the halls of many of our state capitals and legislative branches across the United States with more and more states abandoning the biblical definition of marriage for a new and sinful definition of this sacred union. As a result of this, as Christians, it creates anger, it creates frustration, and we find it convenient as believers to blame Hollywood, to blame the zealots of the alternative lifestyle movement. But let me remind us where the blame for the demise of the traditional marriage falls. It is on us the church. We lost our voice in this debate long ago. We lost our voice when we failed to live up to marriage that God has called us to live out, one of love and of sacrifice and forgiveness and a commitment till death do us part. We lost this high ground in the debate when we made marriage a drudgery, simply something to be endured instead of something that was to be enjoyed. We lost the high ground with regards to marriage when we made it disposable and we said that that was okay. And then we were okay as it became a thing that was outdated. And now as Christians we raise an uproar because marriage has become something that's not delightful but simply is something that now is so depraved. Now I am all for standing up from fighting for marriage in our society. But brothers and sisters, how can we speak about the proper definition of marriage when the Barna group tells us and reminds us that the rate of divorce within the church is the same outside of the church as well? We're hypocrites. How can we speak with any kind of conviction when 66% of born-again believers say that divorce is a reasonable solution to a problem marriage? How can we speak to such issues? How can we speak that we have the right definition when we fail time and time again? It's hard for us to have a foot to stand on when we in the church have such skeletons in the closet when it comes to our own marriages. And we have fallen prey to what Paul exhorted us not to. To not become conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need a reformation. We need revival in the arena 
of the Christian marriage. And until that takes place, we will continue to have zero voice in the halls of politics, in the marketplace, and in the workplace, and even in our homes when it comes to the definition of marriage. And so we have to look to what God's Word says, and we have to see what Jesus says. And as we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus, and we come to this important text, we are reminded and we recognize the first thing that I want us to address this morning, and that is defining marriage belongs to God, not to a committee. Defining what marriage is belongs to God and not to a committee. Notice what the text says. It says, Jesus left the place and went into the region of Judea across from the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom, and he taught them. Now some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now let's stop there for a moment. These texts tell us that Jesus is in the area of Judea. Now, he has spent most of his time, uh, up to about uh, a chapter ago, uh, focusing his time in the area of Galilee and near the Sea of Galilee, moving from north to south, east to west, but always staying within the area. But now he's starting to move farther and farther south into the area of Judea. And we know, and you can look at your text, it is only 52 verses away before Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the event that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And so we are now in Mark's uh, um, time frame, uh, just a couple moments away from the last week of Jesus's life. And once again, the text says that the crowd assembles around Jesus. This is commonplace for Jesus. And it says that there's a crowd there to hear Jesus speak. But amongst the crowd, there are those that haven't come to hear Jesus speak, but the text says there are Pharisees in their midst. And they have come for one reason. The NIV says to test him. This was not an opportunity to genuinely question uh, and to get some information to increase knowledge. But this testing in the original Greek language literally meant that there was a malicious motive behind it. Some translations uh, do maybe even a better job uh, of getting that original uh, word uh, hit in the translations when they use the word to trap him. The desire is, is we're going to use a question that's going to trap him, and after all is said and done, he's going to have some egg on his face, and, and hopefully we'll be able to hurt the ministry of Jesus. This is what the Pharisees are wanting to do. Now, to understand this, we have to have a historic understanding you see, in Jesus' day, there were two camps that fought over the issue of divorce. The disciples uh, were there, and they listened, and they were probably wondering what Jesus was going to say. And the desire of the Pharisees was to split the camp of Jesus, who had been preaching and teaching, who had been healing people and uh, casting out demons, they were hoping, let's, let's shave off some people. We see this in the political realm all the time. Let's get the politician to talk about some things that will alienate and isolate his followers from him so that they'll vote for the other guy. That's what the uh, Pharisees are trying to do. 
If we can get Jesus to side uh, on one of the sides of the thoughts on divorce, then hopefully we'll at least lose at minimum maybe half of the people that are following Christ. Now, what are those two sides? History tells us that the first thought with regards to divorce was held by a rabbi named Hillel. Hillel held what would be called the liberal view of divorce. He taught that a man could divorce his wife under any and all circumstances. And I mean any and all. If a husband didn't like the way his wife cooked, if he didn't like the way she did her hair, if she didn't wear the right clothes, if she, God forbid, spoke ill of his mother, then he could divorce her. If she was infertile, if he was to find a prettier girl at the dance, then he could go give her a certificate of divorce, and it was the end of the discussion. As you can imagine, this was the popular view held by men everywhere in the area of Judea. And I will tell you, Hillel was the first proponent of not the no-fault divorce, but the her-fault divorce. The second view was held by a man named Shammai. Shammai was more conservative. And Shammai held to uh, the idea that only grounds for divorce was the issue of adultery. Now this this, uh, thinking was held by a very small minority. While Hillel's view was the prevailing thought, and the thought that most Pharisees had, Shammai's view was held by a small group of conservative individuals. Now, the reason why Shammai had come to this point was because the existence in New Testament times of stoning adulterers, as was Moses' law, if someone was found to have committed adultery, you were to bring those two people out before the vast majority of the people, and you were to stone them to death because the sin of adultery was something that God said was wicked in his sight. Well, the issue of stoning was no longer practiced by the Jewish people in New Testament times. And so what were you going to do? Shammai said that divorce would be the way to get out of the marriage. It seems, just as a way of speaking parenthetically, that Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, would hold to this view when it says with such grace and tenderness that when he finds out that Mary is going to have a baby and that there's been no union between Joseph and Mary, that he would quietly divorce her. And it seems as if Joseph was a follower of Shammai, not a follower of Hillel. But this causes a great trap, two positions. How would Jesus respond? Let me add just a little more to the fire, and that is that this would be a great trap because it's in the area of Judea. Judea was ruled and reigned by a man named uh, Herod Antipas. And if you don't remember who Herod Antipas is, we just got to go a couple chapters back when we learn about Herod and his incestual relationship with uh, a woman that was his brother's wife. And as a result of that, John the Baptist, who was speaking and preaching, began to speak out against this relationship and called it what it was, sin. And one of the reasons that we learn that Herod has John the Baptist beheaded is because of his position on this sinful marriage. And so here are the Pharisees. We've got Jesus. 
the worst or the best thing that can happen, or I'm sorry, the worst thing that can happen for them is that they get Jesus to take a position, and let's say he sides with Hillel. The followers of Shammai will say, Jesus, we can't follow you anymore, and Jesus loses converts. If he goes on the conservative side and follows uh, Shammai, then the followers that were listening and following him who also believed in the viewpoint of Hillel would get up and leave, and Jesus would lose followers. The best case scenario was is that Jesus would speak out in a land where a broken marriage and a sinful marriage had been established, and in speaking out words that Herod would get ticked off as he did with John the Baptist, and he would have Jesus killed. The Pharisees sit there and say, this is awesome. We have got this guy cornered. Oh, they don't know who they're dealing with. In a debate where people saw fit to define what marriage looked like, Jesus reminds us that this is the Lord's decision. The issue of marriage is not a rabbi's prerogative or a Pharisee's thought or teaching. The issue of marriage and its definition is not the popular opinion of a group of people, no matter how large it is. Let me remind all of us, and let me make this abundantly clear. Marriage cannot and will not be defined by a committee of pastors in a denomination, by congressmen in the halls of a capital, by senators, judges, or even the president of the United States. It is not theirs to define. It is God's alone. And so we have to understand that because if we don't understand that, then we are going to miss out on what God's teaching is on the subject of marriage. Now notice what verse 5 says, Jesus responds, and he says, hey, the reason why Moses wrote such a law was to bring order to the chaos of sin that had come. He says that it's not about turning in the right paperwork, but the issue of divorce is an issue that speaks to the heart of us as individuals. It is because of the hardness of our hearts. I want you to make something fully aware of of this truth and put it into your head. Divorce is always a concession to the hardness of man's heart and due to sin. Every divorce, every divorce begins with sin. It always does. It is not the will of God, it is not the plan of God, and it is not endorsed by God. And instead of playing games... And playing a game of semantics with the words of Moses, Jesus goes back to the beginning. And he addresses what God says on the subject matter. And he says, before you start mincing the words of Moses, let's be reminded of what the Creator said about his institution of marriage. And to do so, it involves, first of all, recognizing its origin. Write that down. Its origin. Notice what Jesus says in verse 6. But at at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. The idea of marriage is not man's invention. Adam did not walk around the garden and talk with the animals and then see Eve and say, Hey, how are you doing there, hot mama? Why don't you come and let's date for a little while? Why don't you uh, go and I've got a, a nice place where we can enjoy a quiet meal and we can get to know each other and then we'll, we'll see how things go. Maybe we'll, we'll habitate for a while and then we will maybe get married. This wasn't Adam's invention. It was God's invention. And it is as old as the Garden of Eden. 
Now notice what he says. It started at creation. It's from the beginning. Brothers and sisters, the church didn't invent marriage. God did. He did in the garden. Now something that we have lost sight of in the American culture today is that when we see how God created marriage in the beginning, that from the beginning it involved a defined couple. It involved a defined couple. Listen to what he says. This is Jesus sharing. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. It's a man and a woman. For those who think that Jesus would be liberal on this social issue is just plain silly. God made them male and female to enter into marriage. Now why would he do that? Because God is good, God is right, and God knows best. And the reason why he does it is because a man and a woman would, cont- uh, would um, complement each other. Excuse me, complement each other in a way that a man and a man couldn't, and a woman and a woman couldn't. And so God, being our creator, says this is how it works. While man and woman are same in many ways, with similarities to who they are, a man is deficient and a woman is deficient for the issue of procreation, for the issue of lifelong companionship, and for the foundation of the family. We can't do it, guys, on our own. Women, you can't do it. I know some of you wives think you can, but you need your husband. And literally what God says is that he made woman in Genesis to be a suitable helper. The Hebrew literally means a corresponding partner. Not one that bumps up against it, but wonderfully and beautifully and miraculously and spiritually corresponds to take two and make them one. We need to know this and address this because Jesus again affirms and reaffirms that if marriage hasn't changed since the beginning, then we need to continue to live out how it was defined in the first place. Now notice Jesus then goes on and he addresses a second issue. And this issue is a question that we have in our society today as well. We talk about the origin, but we also have to understand there's an order to the events of a marriage. Now this is an area where we have fallen on our faces in society in recent years. But notice there is a proper order to how marriage is supposed to take place. There are four steps. Number one, it involves leaving your parents' house. Leaving your parents' house. The idea here, what the text says, Jesus says, for this man, a reason, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. He's got to leave mom and dad. He has to be able, if he wants to get married, please hear me, young people. If you want to get married, you have to be able to function on your own. That means you can't rely on your parents' emotional stability. You can't rely on your parents' financial stability. You can't rely on your parents' decisional, if you will, ability. You have to be able to stand on your own. You can't keep going back to mom and dad and asking for an allowance. You've got to be able to stand on your own. Now, we get this idea, we think it's cute 
And I've seen pictures where there's these little toddler kids and the boy is dressed up in this uh, tuxedo and he's, he's holding a, uh, a, a ring in his hand and then there's this little toddler girl and she's wearing a dress and she's got a bouquet of flowers and all the ladies in the place say, oh, how cute. The problem is, is while something may be cute on a piece of art, it is devastating in the real world. When two individuals think that they're ready to get married, but they're leaning on mom and dad, chaos will ensue. And so what Jesus is saying is, is if you're going to be involved in marriage, then it involves maturity. It involves independence. It involves the ability to stand on your own, to reason for yourself, to make your own decisions and to do so with the resources that you have earned. The second thing that it involves is uniting in holy matrimony. Just as God officiated the wedding in the Garden of Eden, so each and every couple must go before an individual who is called the officiant. Some are dressed up in suits, others in the great impressions of rock and roll singers. And whether Elvis married you or Pastor Tim, God is the officiant. God is the one who seals the deal. And so you got a middleman who looked like Elvis. It doesn't matter. You are married in God's sight. A couple must make their intentions known. Not only make their intentions known, but they must also commit to certain ideals and vows and commitments. Might I add that this is seen in all of the world's religions? You don't get married in the Hindu faith without a public marriage ceremony taking place. You don't get married in the Islamic faith without a public marriage taking place. Don't tell me this is simply Christian. Though it started with us, and though we are the originators of it because it is our God who started it, all the world and even all of the defective world religions that are out there have said, we agree. There must be a marriage that takes place that unites a man and woman together. So there's uniting and holy matrimony. Notice then, and hear me, then and only then is that couple to cleave on the honeymoon. To cleave on the honeymoon. Marital relations are dedicated to the marriage bed. Let me say that again. Marriage relations are dedicated to the marriage bed. And the reason why God saw fit that the two would become one on their wedding night is that it would keep us as human beings free from broken promises, broken hearts, and ruined lives. i got to be honest with you. I don't know of any individual who has gotten married, and who is married, who looks back to their life and sees the struggle of relationships, of, of relations in prior relationships and say, that was an awesome thing. Boy, I'm glad I did that. And young people, I want you to hear that. Because you're being tempted and you're being told simply to put everything out of order. And let me tell you something, to do so brings not only judgment on our hearts, but it brings more pain and more suffering to us than any of us would want to bear. 
And there are people within this congregation who in tears would tell you the mistake of putting the order in the wrong place. It's not worth it. It's never going to be what you think it's going to be unless God endorses it. Now, why is this so important? Because the union of a man and woman is a wonderful picture. I shared this in my theology class last week. It is the picture that we are given to understand the triune nature of God. Now you say, how in the world is that? We believe in one God who exists in three persons. Unity, one. Diversity, three. It is here where two diverse individuals become one. That the diversity of the man and the woman become united in what I would call not only a physical union, but a spiritual one as well. And you say, Tim, where do you get that? Malachi 2.15, you can write that passage down. Malachi 2.15 says, Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? And what was God seeking but godly offspring? So let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Physical relationship is physical. Yes, that's a part of it. But let us understand that the relationship in the marriage is something that is deeply emotional and something that is incredibly spiritual, and it was intended to be in its proper place. And when we fail to live that out, we fail to see and experience the blessing that God gives us in it. The final thing is that it creates a new home. Marriage is the foundation that must be strong for the family's sake. It is no wonder that the children of divorced parents are prone to divorcing their own spouse four times greater than that of children of couples who are not divorced. And the reason why Jesus says this is he doesn't want us to break up our marriages. He doesn't want us to fall to the sin of broken marriages and hurting one another. And so he says, notice what the text says, to cleave. The idea of cleaving is being stuck like glue. And to cleave means to uh, endure suffering, to pursue forgiveness, accountability and con a commitment, and, an, and a lot of prayer. I am so thankful that my wife has made a commitment to cleave to me. And you may not believe it, and that's okay, but Amanda has had so many reasons on why she should say, you know what, Tim, I'm out of here. Just live with me for a day. And Amanda says, no, what God has put together, and I don't know what I saw back then, but I cleaved, and so I'm here. <laughs> she shows the love and the patience and the endurance of what every godly individual should strive for. And for that, I'm blessed. Notice that Jesus says this is an obligation. We must remember, write this down, we must remember that within this obligation, that marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. The Pharisees had made this an issue of contract. If I turn in the right paperwork, then everything is fine. But notice he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. There's a covenant that takes place, and there's a difference between covenants and contracts. Contracts involve promises. Covenants involve people. Contracts are what we do at business, in business every day. 
There's a contract between a teacher and a student. There's a contract uh, between a seller and a buyer. What you say uh, in a contract is you say, and in my world of catering, someone calls me and says, I want this catering to be done. I want this food to be served at this time and in this place. And I say, okay, this is what it will cost me. And so there's a transfer of things. I live up to my end of the bargain, and the person lives up to their end of the bargain, and there is finances, there is something that is transacted. They give me money, I give them food with a smile. That's business. Marriage is not a business. Marriage is not a business transaction. Contract says, if you don't live up to your end of the bargain, then I can get out. But a covenant says, even, listen to me, even when you fail, spouse, to live up to your end of the deal, I will remain committed. Whether in good times or in bad, whether in sickness or in health, whether in richness or in poverty. Can I say it is a sad day when you can get out of your marriage a lot easier than you can out of most cellular phone packages? Isn't there a truth to that? Two people say we want out, they sign on the dotted line, it's over. But man, if your phone doesn't work, you're stuck with it for two years. Understand the next thing is that marriage is permanent, not just for a period of time. In October, I read a report from Reuters News Agency that said there was a plan and legislation that was planned in Mexico to combat the massive divorce in their country by making marriage short-term. And so what the legislators said in Mexico is we would make marriage begin and have a 24-month term, two years and then there would be a re-upping opportunity. So instead of saying, death do you part, they say, well, we'll see how you do, bucko, and if you don't live up to your end of the bargain, I'm out of here in two years. Again, a little bit odd that we take the two-year contract of a cellular service plan and we put it into what God intended for marriage. Here are the Pharisees, and just like us today, we address the symptoms and the, sin, uh, the symptoms of the sin, instead of the root of the problem, the hardness of the hearts of us as people. And we as God's people have to stop conforming and allow God to transform our marriages. Because when we do, something beautiful comes to light. When we begin to do what God intended and commit as God intended, we will do things that we never thought were possible within our marriage. You say, Tim, but you don't know my husband. Well, saturate it with the love of Christ, and I will tell you that God loved the unlovable, and so can you. But you don't know my wife. She nags, and, and she's always on me about this, that, and the other thing. Well, you know what? Have you listened to some of our prayers to our Father in heaven? Nag, 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 nag. God, give me this. God, give me that. And what does God do? He remains faithful. Robert and Muriel McQuilkin were married for 60 years. 22 of those years would see Muriel battle early onset Alzheimer's. It would get so bad that Robert would have to resign as the president of Columbia Bible College to care for his wife. The last 10 years in a state where she would not even recognize him. He would have to resign in 1990. And for the next 13 years, he would care for her. 
And he talks about his marriage vows, and he does so. And I'm going to show you a video here, just a short one, where during his resignation from his dream job as president of a Bible college, he says it's his great honor and privilege to serve his wife. Notice as we watch this that marriage is not a contract but a covenant, and it's not for a period of time but forever. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. When we follow Christ's example, we'll be able to do those types of things where it seems impossible to serve our spouse in the most difficult of circumstances, God will give us the grace to do so. Now let's move on. We have to, for the sake of time, address three more things, and I will keep them short. But we need to also recognize that not all marriages, because of the issue of sin, will last forever. Jesus goes on, and in verses 10 through 12, he speaks to his disciples, and he says when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife or marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. What Jesus is articulating in this passage is not the full treatment of what the Word of God says. But as we look at the Scripture as a whole, we see this truth, that dissolving a marriage is allowable in certain circumstances that the dissolving of a marriage is allowable in certain circumstances. Now, we could spend weeks on this, but because we're in a series that's in Mark, I want to stay true to what we are doing in this text, and so we're just going to hit on these things just a little bit, and then I want to encourage you to look at the scriptures that I give to address these issues. The first one, the first way you can dissolve a marriage is through the death of a spouse, the death of a spouse. Write these passages down, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 speaks of this, and Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. 
Death dissolves the marital covenant. But please understand me, you cannot kill your spouse and think that that dissolves the marriage. It's got to happen naturally, okay? It's got to happen on its own. The second way that the scripture teaches that there's a dissolving of the marital covenant is found in 1 Corinthians 7 as well. And it is the desertion by an unbelieving spouse. The desertion of an unbelieving spouse. Let me give you just a quick understanding of what this is. Two unbelievers get married. And they enjoy the covenant of marriage because unbelievers are in marriage just as believers are. And these two individuals, unbelievers, have become one in marriage. And they're living life and enjoying life. And at some point, at some time, whether it's the husband or the wife, someone comes to know Christ. And now there is a mixed marriage. Paul tells them, or tells the believer, that while they can't leave, the unbeliever is free to do so. Now you say, why would that happen? Because the radical change of an unbeliever to a Christian is night and day. And so the unbeliever says, what happened to you? Why did you change the things we used to do, the friends that we had, the places we used to go? You don't want to do that anymore. you got this Jesus character in your life, and I don't like it. I didn't buy into this. And Paul says if that's the case, the believer is to allow, not to push away, not to shove, not to hurt, but to allow them to leave. The final one that we see is the defiling of a marriage through unrepentant sexual immorality. Now this isn't seen in Mark chapter 10, but it is seen in Matthew chapter 19 verse 9. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus, what seemingly is the parallel passage of this text, says the following. In verse 8, he says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But this was not the way it was from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, just very quickly, uh, the NIV does a good job of translating this. I want you to just notice and listen to this for a moment. I tell you the truth that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, that is the word porneia. It's where we get the idea of pornography. It is the idea of um, uh, all kinds of sexual sin. And he says that this porneia, marital unfaithfulness, leads to mokia, which is adultery. And so what that says is that there is the opportunity that you can uh, dissolve a marriage because of marital unfaithfulness, because of all kinds of unchastity. And it's not simply just an affair, but it's all types of things. Now, because of what Scripture says, we add a word to it, and I think we are wise in doing so. And that word is the word unrepentant. Because if your brother has been found in sin, you who are spiritual are to go to them, and if you are able to win over your brother, it's the end of the discussion. And so if you think that when your husband or wife comes to you and says there's been an affair, that you can say, get out, if he or she is underneath saying, I am sorry, I've blown it, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned against you, the only job and the only recourse you have is to forgive them. While trust may take years to fix in some circumstances, your job is to seek reconciliation. And so these are the three. Now, none of these are gimmies. And I want you to see this other statement. 
And the other statement that will come up on the screen is that even though there are allowances, while it is true that these three allowances are biblical, remarriage is never commanded. It is never commanded, and remarriage is always a concession in Scripture. So whether or not your spouse dies, you are deserted by an unbeliever, or because of marital unfaithfulness, it isn't a gimme that you should get remarried. Now you say, wait a minute, Tim. I lost my wife to cancer, and I should be able to remarry. Yes, you're given that allowance, but Paul's words to those who are widows is to serve the Lord. Remain single. Do what you can, not being bound to another wife, but bound to Christ. But you say, my, my unbelieving spouse left, and, and I want to get remarried. There's an allowance to do so. But the scripture says, why would you do that knowing that your, um, your spouse, the unbeliever, may come to know Christ as you did? And what a tragedy it would be that the believer goes and gets married, and then the unbeliever comes back and says, I was led to Christ. Can we get back together? I'm sorry, I can't. I'm with this person now. Marriage, remarriage is always a concession. And so we need to think twice and think patiently. Now, what's the concession? The concession is always the appetites of the earthly nature, the flesh. If you can't contain yourselves, then get married. That's what Paul says. Younger widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5 says, because they can't contain themselves, they ought to get married instead of being idle and going from house to house as busybodies. It's always a concession. What he is saying is remain single. Now, I know that this is a hopeless venture for some. Paul reminds us, though, that the single life is one that carries far less worries, burdens, and pains and allows us to stay focused in on Christ and his kingdom. Now, we need to understand one other thing, and that is, and write this down as well, because this is the third point, divorcing one spouse for unbiblical reasons and marrying another is considered adultery. Wow, Tim, you really mean that? I don't. The scriptures do. We just have to look again at the text, and we don't have to understand the Greek for it. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now you say that that truth is difficult. And you say, Tim, I, 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 what about my circumstances? I'm in an abusive relationship. I'm in a dysfunctional relationship. I'm in a cold relationship, a non-satisfying relationship, a struggling relationship, a marriage that has irreconcilable differences. To answer those and say that they are not the cause of adultery is to go outside of the Bible for an answer to fulfill what you want it to say. Now, a word to that. If you find yourself in a situation where your, your life is in danger, you don't stay there. Get out of the house, seek shelter, and call the authorities to get help. No one ever is to be abused or treated in any humane way, in any way. But divorce is not an option. And as sad as I am to say that, it goes against what Scripture says. Divorcing one spouse for any other reason than those first three and marrying another individual is considered adultery. I could go a lot more on this, but I'm going to stop there. And let's give you one final point before we close this out. If we want to find the heart of God 
and the hope for our homes with regards to marriage, then it involves one final thing, and that is declaring a war on divorce and celebrating marriage because it's at the heart of God. Now, let me tell you right away that when I say declaring a war on divorce, I don't mean declaring a war on divorced people. Some of our most faithful, some of our most generous, some of our most spiritual people in this place are people who have endured the struggle of divorce in their past. And they are to be loved, they are to be cherished, and they are to be held in the highest of regard. Divorce at Village Bible Church, if it is in your past, is not a scarlet letter to be shunned. It is to be shown with grace, mercy, and love. And so if we're going to declare a war on divorce, why would we do that? Because the scripture says that God hates divorce. And wouldn't it be important if we as a church would hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves? So let's be a church that hates divorce that hates the problems and the troubles that come with divorce and the breakdown of the family that ensues and let's start loving marriage and let's start supporting marriage and let's start uh, uh, embracing the covenant of marriage in a way like never before. Now if we do that, it means some different things for some different people. And so let me close with this. Number one, I want to speak a word of encouragement to all of us. Number one, to those who are divorced. To those who are divorced, I want you to hear my heart, and that is my heart breaks because I recognize the pain and the turmoil that you have endured. Some of you have endured the pain that has been inflicted by another. And you sit there and say, Tim, you're really laying it on thick. Well, let me tell you something. In this church, we are not partial to putting people on the hot seat. And this week may be the week you feel a little hot under the collar, and that's okay because last week it was me. And the week before, it was the guy sitting next to you. And this is what we love about teaching and preaching God's word because it challenges us. But just like every other sin, divorce is one that should be asked for forgiveness. It should be confessed like all the other sins that I deal with. And when it is forgiven, the sin, I'm sorry, when it's confessed, the sin of divorce is forgiven once and for all. So if you're divorced here, separated from your spouse, seek peace with your spouse reconcile as far as it depends on you live at peace with your spouse love them cherish them seek to try to get back together I know there's a lot of issues but strive for it to those who are remarried if you have divorced and gotten remarried outside of the three allowances of Scripture then I want you to recognize something as difficult as it is for me to say Scripture is clear that that second marriage began with the sin of adultery. But I am so glad that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die just for my lying tongue and my lustful heart and the evil things that I do, but just alongside that cross, as those sins were, Jesus died for the sin of adultery as well. And when we go to Christ and we confess that, the scripture says even though we may have been unfaithful, Jesus Christ is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So you're in a second marriage. That state of adultery ended the moment that you became husband and wife. And so what's your job? I was asked that in the small group on Friday that I lead, and a woman said, what about me? I'm in a new marriage. And my response was, love your husband as Christ loves you. Love him, 
Seek peace with your former spouse. Do all that you can to show Christ in all relationships and in your present marriage. Honor God in every way and make it last. For those who are married, don't take your marriage for granted. Stay committed. Here's my word to all of us who are married and have not suffered divorce or brokenness in our marriage. Get the words of 1 Corinthians 13 off your wall as a decoration and put it into the heart of your marriage. Oh, those are wonderful flowery words. You know where they're even more beautiful? Is in the center of a marriage where love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast, it keeps no record of wrong, it endures forever. And for the church, divorce will be something that we will deal with as a church because we have to deal with sin. And divorce is always divisive. And we need to pray for the marriages of this church. We need to pray for the leaders who endure, who endure uh, the, the troubling uh, times of counsel and mediation that comes. And we need to pray as a church that we will deal with marriages in a way that honors God. Because it's our job as brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage, nurture, mentor the other marriages around us. As people a part of Village Bible Church, let me ask you a couple questions. When was the last time a newly married couple had some opportunity to spend with you, an older married couple, where you could share some of the truths and some of the hardships that you've learned? How often as friends do you speak to one another about the strength of their marriage? helping them, encouraging them, praying for them? When was the last time you as men that we looked at our lives and sought if whether or not we were the spiritual leaders of the home that God has called us to, loving our wives and making them feel cherished? Ladies, when was the last time that you really made it your heart's passion to go out of your way to make sure that your husband is honored and respected? You see, what happens in a message like this is we begin to look around and we begin to look at people and we say, well, their marriages look just fine. They've got it all put together. And little do we recognize that as clean as some of our marriages may look to you, they've got troubles in them as well. Don't ever judge a book by its cover and recognize that Satan beats us all up. You may think you're the only loser who can't figure it out, but understand this, and I will tell you this of Amanda and I, we always are learning in our marriage. We don't have it perfect. We've got our troubles, and by the grace of God, he sees us through. We all need the conviction of the Holy Scriptures and the Holy Spirit and the admonishment of other believers if we're going to make this work. And so I know there's much more that we could address, but I want to close here and say, if it isn't by the grace of Almighty God, we would be ruined in our marriages. And so let's go to the only hope, the only help that we can find, and that is our God in heaven who gives us the wonderful recipe of marriage that will help us and sustain us in the years to come. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. And Lord, I, I am assured that there are some that have incredible questions Lord, I'm certain that there are those that are in disagreement with what I've said. Lord, I know there are some who sit there and say, what a waste of time. My marriage is just fine, and pastor, keep your nose out of my life. But Lord, we have come not to hear from Tim. We have come to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would prompt in our hearts there's changes in all of our hearts that needs to be done. 
Oh, Lord, I pray that we would turn from our sinful ways and we would follow you, that we would strive to live like you, that we would love and forgive as you did, that we would, even though we are hurt and we are mocked and we are abused, that we would remember the words from the cross that say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Lord, that that would be a response in our marriage when we are hurt and offended. Lord, I pray that you would change our thinking on this. Society has the upper hand, and Lord, we now turn to you and ask that you would change our hearts so that we may be a light in a world of darkness with regards to our marriages. Lord, be with those who endure struggles and pains from a troubled marriage in the past. Lord, let them find the grace that you promise. Let them find a place here where there's hope and there's love and there's the opportunity to serve. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for your word. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.